I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The Drive Nation podcast with Dan Prosser and Andrew Frankel. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody, and welcome to 2021. A brand Yay. new year. Yeah, one that we hope is going to be a bit brighter than the last year. Reason to be optimistic, I think, um, Andrew. I, for one thing, we can put the phrase no deal firmly out of our consciousness now because it's, that hasn't happened. It won't happen. Um, a huge relief for so many UK businesses, UK industry as a whole. Yeah, and, and, and automotive particularly, yeah. um, just because of the amount of stuff that goes from here to there and from, and from there to here. So, um, yeah, I mean, I don't think anybody yet knows whether the, the deal that has been done will end up being better or worse, massively smaller, who knows, um, than what would happen if we stayed in. But I think everybody agrees that, you know, it's certainly going to be better than if we crashed out. So, um, yeah, I think that's definitely something. Yeah, a little bit of sunshine there, just a little bit. And uh, But perhaps more importantly, COVID vaccinations are now happening. Um, yeah. And there's talk of... Uh, restrictions being lifted by sort of March time, maybe Easter. Um, I mean, we've heard a lot of all, all that stuff before, haven't we? But yes, vaccinations has to be good news. So anyway, point being, I, I'm, 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 I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a fantastic period. It probably won't last very long, but because I'm so unbelievably old, um, I'm likely to get <laughs> oh, yes. vaccinated quite a long time before you are. Um, so I'm going to be in, insufferably smug. I'm going to be swanning around the place, um, getting out there and doing all the things that we used to take for granted. Um, yeah. Um, so, yeah, no, that's obviously got to be good as well. All those freelancers like myself in their 30s and their 20s, we're all a bit stuffed, aren't we, for three or four months. Um, anyway, so let's. this podcast is actually going to be about Formula One's family tree and I'll explain that in more detail later on but I think because it is the first podcast of the new year and all of us are hoping that it's going to be a better year we should um, get this episode underway by talking about the stuff that we're looking forward to in 2021 uh, I think mo most specifically the the start the new cars that we're looking forward to driving so what's on your radar for this year i mean they're all sorts of obvious i mean you know this i think this is going to be the year where we where we you know, where the electric thing really starts to buy and I, i'm really looking forward to not that i suspect for a moment that i'll do it um i'm really looking forward to driving an electric sports car um you know we know where the standard is at the moment it, it, it it's it's there with the porsche Taycan, which i've described as being you know a car that is sporting in nature um but it's still not a car that I would describe as one whose primary purpose is to provide driving pleasure. It, it, it does that to an extent, but it does lots of other things too, which is what it's really all about. So uh, I would like to think that I'm going to do that in 2021. I don't think for a moment that I will. But in the meantime, you know, we've got a new GT3 911 coming along. Um, you know, there's a new M3, M4 coming along. I guess, actually... Um, of all, of them all, the one that I'm most interested in, probably the one I know least about, um, is the new Lotus. Not the how are we pronouncing it? Avia, 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 uh, yeah, Avia. Not that um, because 
I don't. Well, I think my views on two thousand horsepower hypercars are probably quite well known. Um, but the Type One Three One, which is, as I understand it, at least, uh, this, this is going to be the first um, all new car that's going to be created for sort of general consumption by Lotus since it got bought by Geely. Um, and my understanding is that they, they call it all new. I think that there will be some takeover from the Evora. I don't think it's, and I may be wrong about this, but my understanding is it's not 100% new, but if it is effectively, I think it's new enough to be considered as such. Um, and it's a car, I think, that will be positioned between the Exige and the Evora. Um, and I guess as such, it's going to be gunning for, well, I mean, probably your car, probably for, you know, A110s and for lower end Caymans and that sort of thing. And I think that's just going to, we are, we're just, I mean, A, obviously I'm very interested to drive any new Lotus and, and any Lotus like that, but I think it's also, it's going to be so instructive, isn't it? It's going to be so informative. It's going to tell us so much about the way that, the Chinese uh, want this brand to develop, um, and there is all you know, and and, and I'm very helpful, um, helpful, hopeful, um, <laughs> because you know, you, if you look at what they've done with Volvo, um, which they also own, they've turned Volvo from an absolute sort of middle order, also ran buy one of these if you can't face for whatever reason buying a German car into something into a brand that is absolutely desirable in its own right you know as good a rival to a BMW and Audi or Mercedes as as you'd want to find um and we need them to do that again with Lotus um and they did it with Volvo just by you know backing Volvo frankly it's not like you know Geely has been you know pulling their strings like puppets saying do this do that they've just said look you know we bought the brand because we have faith in it you are the guys who know much more about it than we do here's the money and you know we will let you get on with it um until we think you know you're not doing it right and i think but just by giving them that autonomy and sitting back and you know certainly providing the means to let it all happen but also having the common sense to recognize that the people who should make it happen the people who are closest to the brand you know it's worked terribly well and everything that i hear coming out of lotus about you know their desire to keep their cars you know light and simple and true to the original vision i find you know immensely encouraging i think that brands and lotus has done it lotus did it in the 70s when they started going off making you know supercars and that sort of thing um you know i think the brands that forget the reasons that made themselves great in the first place do so at their peril um and i think that as long as you know in a 21st century concert you know um sorry in a 21st century era where we know that things can never be as light as they once were but as long as lotuses remain the lightest cars in their class as long as they remain technically innovative as long as they remain absolutely focused on the provision of simple driving pleasure then you know i think that there's a, still a great future um for that company um mm. so yeah we will see i'm also really interested to see what a four-cylinder c63 amg <laughs> is going to be like oh because i can't get my head around that i yeah. mean you know, I'm sure it'll be very good and i'm sure it'll have loads of power and it'll stack up on paper in all sorts of ways but I don't know. I mean, you know, they're very, very clever guys. Um, and, you know, they've done some amazing things. But uh, <laughs> really? You know, a four-cylinder? I mean, you know, my mind is open and I won't judge it for a moment until I've seen it. But, you know, if, if as we all believe, the next series of, you know, CE63s or whatever are going to be two-litre four-cylinder hybrids... Um, my jury remains completely out as to whether they can um, genuinely replace a large capacity stonking V8. What about you? Well, yes. I mean, it's not power that's the issue, is it? Because they've already got 420 horsepower or whatever it is out of their four-cylinder turbo engine. Yeah, and once you bring a load of hybrid assistance into that, the the, the numbers will be fine. No doubt about that at all. Yeah. But it's, it's the soundtrack, it's the character, power delivery, all that stuff that you just can't replicate with four cylinders, you know, particularly one. We all love the eight cylinder soundtrack and power delivery so much. Um, and all of a sudden it's being taken away from us. And that's so AMG, isn't it? A V8 is so AMG. And I know they'll continue to make them elsewhere, but. Oh, yeah, um, well, but, but, you know, but not my, you know, to me, a V8 to AMG is what a V12 is to Ferrari. It's, it, it's a kind of indivisible part of the, of, of the magic, isn't it? 
Yeah, it really is. A Ferrari, a Ferrari can make V8s and they can do other things, but they, they but the, the day Ferrari stop building V12s, you know, something of the magic of Ferrari will go with it. And, you know, I know, I know that they will make some V8s and that sort of thing, but, you know, I... I, I <laughs> I don't know. We, 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 we will see. But, um, you know, I can see all sorts of reasons, you know, for the head for a force and the hybrid to work, but very few for the heart. But, you know, maybe mm. I'm completely wrong. And right at the top end of the market, there are a couple of other cars that we're hoping to get a go in this year. The Aston Martin Valkyrie, the Mercedes AMG one. And of course, between us, we've already agreed that should the invitation come in to drive nation, um, I get to drive both of them first. I think that's very fair. <laughs> I, I, Good, I, I, it's on the record now that's, that's official yeah, okay. yes let's let's see what exactly what uh, i mean yes i mean I, I i think those cars are i mean there will be loads of people um who just say that these cars are irrelevant um and play things for rich people and, and they are all of that but i just don't think you could be interested in this business without being interested in cars that do stuff that cars have never done before i think that's just part of progress isn't it i think it's i think it's fascinating to experience and to see and to understand how people go about doing anything that's never been done before and that's what these guys are doing so um you know i i am very excited about those cars i mean ask me what i do with one if i had one um i probably wouldn't be able to provide you with a very good answer but if i was that rich it probably wouldn't matter either so uh, there's also um while we're talking about sort of top end carbon supercars there's the new mclaren isn't there um which is a critically um, the v6 the v6 we believe the v6 hybrid mclaren which is you know and, and, and they 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 describe this car as being the most important car that they have launched in the history of mclaren automotive which dates back to the launch of the uh 12c in 2011 it is new as i understand it absolutely from the tires upwards uh it has a new tub it's made in their new facility uh, up in sheffield um and it's their kind of start again car, isn't it? Uh, and I think that McLaren, which has, you know, like, you know, like Aston Martin and many other brands has had a pretty tough time of it recently. Um, you know, I, I, I'm very interested, for instance, to see how McLaren, which is, you know, equally wedded to the lightweighting thing as Lotus, um, go about doing a hybrid, which obviously have to have electric motors and battery packs and everything else while staying true to those values. Um, and yeah, and and also, you know, rightly or wrongly, McLaren has is perceived to have, you know, had a few issues, particularly around build quality and that sort of thing. And this is obviously their big moment to reset all that as well. So um, I can't wait to see it. I can't wait to get into into it. I'm really, really interested by that too. Okay, firmly back in the real world, then. There's also oh, yeah. a little Hyundai to get excited about. There is the i20n, yeah, um, rival to the Fiesta ST. Uh, I've had a go in a prototype, and it, is, it could be really good fun. <laughs> I think yeah. it's you know just a, what you want from one of those little hot hatches, um, a energetic little engine, um, and a playful sort of chassis balance. Uh, it, the difference between it and the Fiesta ST is I, I adore the Fiesta ST. I'm on record many times as saying that, um, but it's got quite contrived dynamics. That very alert steering that chassis balance is very very throttle adjustable yeah so it, you know they've they've ford have specifically engineered that car to feel a certain way and hyundai takes a very different approach it just wants its cars its end cars to feel authentic and um uh not over not contrived the way that the ford does but more honest more faithful and that that does play out that does bear out in when you drive the car um, but is it? But um, yeah, I mean, I, I take all that, and I, I actually kind of admire all that. But if the end result is less fun to drive, I mean, I don't sit there hooning a Fiesta ST around the track, thinking to myself, "Is this contrived? You know, have they put a you know barn door on, on the back of the car, the rear roll bar, whatever, just to make it angle into the corner like that?" And I was sitting there, just sort of scratching my chin, thinking, "Oh, I just wonder whether this feels authentic." I'm, not, I'm just having a good time, and surely that's what matters, isn't it? It doesn't really matter how you do it, as long as the end result gets the job done and the and the job for those cars i mean you know i understand with cars like you know golf r's and that sort of thing which are you know 10 plus grand more expensive um have a family brief um you know and and have to be able to do the long distance i i completely understand 
you know, the need to provide cars, such cars with practicality, ride refinement and all those other things. But if you're going to do a little pocket rocket, it's just got to be fun, isn't it? And that's what that Ford does so well. It's just fun. And I think you can overthink it. I think you can, you know, navel gaze and, you know, and put your hand on your brow and look into the middle distance and say, I want this to be the purest driver. But ultimately, at the end of the day, when somebody gets into it and goes hooning off around the place, you know, it's... To me, if, if, and we said this before in this podcast, it's the only mistake that Yaris makes, the GR, the Toyota GR Yaris, is it's so, um, caught up with being incredibly impressive and incredibly fast. It's just, it's, it's not quite, it's like 92% <laughs> as much fun as it could be. And when you drive it, you are aware of the 8% and you know that it could be there because the cars, let's face it, the car's got all the ability. Um, and it, and, and you could just, they could just do that with the tuning without any problem at all. But they chose not to because they, 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 they for their own reasons, they went down a different road and, you know, and I don't have much truck with that. But for me, those sorts of cars, they just have to be fun, fun, fun. I'm just not that bothered about how they get there as long as they get there one way or another. You've expressed very precisely why I, sitting here now, why I suspect in the head-to-head the Fiesta ST is going to come ahead of the Hyundai i20n, um, because because Ford have taken a more fun-first approach with the car. Um, And I do just worry that Hyundai's engineers have been slightly po-faced with making the i20n uh you know a, a pure sort of authentic hot hatch and, and they haven't just gone how can we make this the most hilarious thing imaginable so yeah i mean that's the fun twin test for 2021 and we'll we'll yeah. see what the outcome is um should, should we just do a tiny bit on electrics so we've got <laughs> right go on <laughs> Well, I mean, there are going to be some very interesting takes, aren't there? Because, for okay. instance, we've got the Audi e-tron GT, which is their Porsche Taycan. You know, yeah. same platform, same, you know, uh, gubbins. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what Audi makes of that opportunity. We know what Porsche does with it. And, you know, within that realm, it is it is amazing. I'm going to be driving quite shortly the Mustang Mach-E, mm. um, which, you know... I go into with an open mind, you know, I'm not going to be so stupid as to go in there and thinking this is going to be as much fun as, you know, something with an enormous V8 under the bonnet. I know it's trying to do a different thing, but nevertheless, you know, Ford have written the check, haven't they, by putting the Mustang name on it. So the car below has to deliver on that promise, doesn't it? So, you know, um, I also, you know, the Mercedes, they've got a whole slew of electric cars coming out this year, but, you know, one of which is an electric S-Class um and jaguar apparently um you know are going to come up with an electric um xj so you know there are going to be some really big luxury electric cars um mm. and you know yeah I the think first elect- of their type actually yeah really and you know and i've always said you know ever since i drove that um electric rolls royce phantom that they did as a sort of concept that you know actually those are the sorts of cars that electricity most favors in theory at least because they are silent because they have limitless torque from low down you know it's a great great source of power for an electric car um sorry for a for a luxury car except of course for the whole you know range and recharge issue but i guess as those diminish um people will increasingly be persuaded to that way of thinking i don't know it's going to be an interesting year isn't it um there's going to be all sorts of stuff from all parts of the market i mean every year is but you know i think that 2020 has been such a weird year frankly um i hope that when did we go into lockdown it was march wasn't it originally yeah um that by the time we've hit that anniversary um that things will be really getting back into their stride and you know normal service will be you know, if not completely back to where it was, but, you know, well on the way. And it's in March that the 2021 Formula One season is scheduled to get underway. Um, and there's plenty like to look forward there. to. It's good, wasn't it? There's oh, <laughs> plenty to look forward to there as well. We've got some driver changes that will be quite fun. We've got Ricardo to McLaren. We've got Sainz to Ferrari, Perez to Red Bull. Also, and this brings us on to the topic for um, this week's episode of the podcast, we've got Alpine and Aston Martin joining f1 yes can i just say how sorry i feel for for alex albon oh okay right fine yeah go on do sorry i just do i just do i mean you know i know that i mean you know there cannot be 
Well, I mean, unless your name's Bottas, I guess. But I was about to say, there cannot be a sterner test in Formula One than being Max Verstappen's teammate. Um, and I, I, you know, if he could have cracked qualifying and have got, you know, within a tenth of Max instead of five tenths, uh, and so if he'd always started that much further up the up the grid, I, I would I'd been really really interested to see how he would have got on because you know if you look at particularly his ability to overtake things and that sort of thing, he's a proper racing driver, isn't he? Yeah. Um, yep. And I just you know I I just feel there is a a story yet to be told there, and my fear is that he's not going to get to tell it. Um, I really hope I'm wrong. Sorry. No, it's okay. Actually, it's a good topic because. The trouble is, he was just driving Max's car, wasn't he? Exactly, and 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 you—it's a very—it's a very good point, Dan. Because you know, you look at talk to anybody who was um, Michael Schumacher's teammate, and they were doubly stuffed because a they were stuffed because frankly none of them was as good as Michael. But secondly, they had to drive Michael's car, and Michael liked his car set up in a very particular way, which you know, and so they were designed to be incredibly pointy. Um. You know, he was he was very much of the. You know, he was an oversteer merchant. He just liked. You know, as long as the front got where he wanted to be, he'd sort out the back himself, and you know that made the cars incredibly agile. And with somebody with that level of talent and and reactions, uh, incredibly quick. But if you were one percent off that, what you actually had was a car that was incredibly difficult to drive. And yeah, maybe that's what Alex has been dealing with all year. Um, so I wish him all the best. Mm. Yeah. Well, we'll and we'll see if Perez is able to get any closer uh, in yeah. what seems to be a tricky car. Um, so yeah, there is in F1 a lot to look forward to, including, as I said, Alpine and Aston Martin um, joining the fray. Although, let's not pretend that they've invested in wind tunnels, hired racing car designers, set up new facilities. Actually, it's just existing teams changing let, colours. Let, let, let's be honest, they're not Aston Martins or Alpines, are they? But, you know, is a Red Bull a Red Bull? Yeah. You know, is it, or, or is a Red Bull a fizzy drink manufacturer which pays a huge amount of money to a Formula One team to make cars for them? I mean, you know, the lines are very blurred, aren't they? Mm. Yeah. And it's, it, it's title sponsorship and it, it's how one team becomes a different team. Um, it's certainly in, in terms of you know the colours and what it's called, but actually the team remains more or less the same. Um, and this is where we start looking into Formula One's family tree, teams being taken over, relocated, expanded over over time. Um, and it explains how the tiny team founded by Ken Tyrrell way back in perhaps the I mean he was going in the fifties I think, but sixties in Formula One how it eventually became the Mercedes Formula 1 team that we know today with a record-breaking seven back-to-back championship doubles. Um, It's just so interesting that you can directly trace Mercedes' lineage back to Ken Tyrrell's team. You you can, and and people will say it's a bit sort of trigger's broom, isn't it, that that, that none of the people there now would have been there. But, you know, to to me it doesn't really matter, you know, because there is that continual heritage you know it wasn't that it's not like they've just you know do you remember when um for instance romano artioli started bugatti again in the in the mid-1990s he just picked a name off the shelf and bought it and then created a new car company it's it's not that this is one team that evolves with different names um you know for you know well over 50 years now and it's you know it's it's always been the same team and as you say it's expanded and staff have changed and locations have changed and everything else but you know from from then until now um it has just continuously evolved and it it is absolutely fascinating i think Mm. yeah uh, before we move any further do we need to explain for our overseas audience the triggers broom reference Oh, <laughs> um, yes, probably certainly, yes. Um, so Tr- Trigger was a character in a well-known British simple called Only Fools and Horses. He had, and he was, a, he was, he was he a, I can't remember what it was, he a dustman or someone. Anyway, he had a broom. Um, and he said he'd had the same broom for the last know, 25 years. And he said it's had 18 new heads and 17 new handles. And um, hence the concept of Trigger's broom. Um, because obviously, clearly, it was no way related to the original broom whatsoever. So, yeah. um, yes, that's it's what just Trigger's become broom a- is. A very common phrase in the UK, isn't it? Triggers brief. Yes. Um, okay. Right. Well, there are four Formula One teams, all UK based, that I think we're going to talk about in a bit more detail. Um, Just because- before we do, and I'm sorry to butt in, <laughs> if, if we'd on. actually structured these things, then, um, you know, th- there wouldn't be need for me to do this. But because we just kind of wing it. Um, 
the idea of um, sort of title sponsorship, which, you know, I'm sure people will get, you know, hot under the collar as they did with Lotus in whenever it came back in the early 2010s and now with Alpine and with Aston Martin. This isn't new. You know, back in the mid in the early 1970s, when, you know, what we think of now as, you know, Lotuses, the Lotus 72, driven by, you know, guys like uh, Ronnie Peterson and Emerson Fittipaldi were winning world championships and driver championships, constructor championships. They weren't Lotuses. Go on. Yeah. They were, of course, Lotuses in every single way, apart from their names. They weren't called, they were called John Player Specials. They were called JPSs. Um, and if you look at the press release um, that comes out, it'll ju- it'll it'll just say new JPS two or whatever you know the stuff that came out at the time, and that was a cigarette manufacturer doing exactly the same thick end of fifty years ago to what these guys are doing now. Now I'm not saying that it's uh, that in any way justifies it, but it is the way of the world. And all I would say is, you know, anybody who's saying you know, on the point of going, you know, things ain't what they used to be, well they are because people have been doing it for donkey's years. Yeah. Yeah, it's just how it operates, how F1 operates, isn't it, really? Um, so, yeah, there are, there are four teams that I want to talk about. And actually, it's most helpful to think about them based on their current locations. So we've got the Silverstone team, we've got the Endstone team, we've got the Brackley team, and the Milton Keynes team. Um, and we'll come back to this, but you'll notice that they're all clustered around the, the sort of M40 corridor in the UK, Motorsport Valley, as it's known. Um, and we'll talk about that a bit more later on. But let's start with the Silverstone team. Um, as in 2020, that was Racing Point, and of course, for this new season, it becomes Aston Martin, um, which is—I mean, it's—I think it is going to be fun to see the Aston Martin name competing in Formula One, um, just because. Well, they were so—they they were so good at it the last time they tried. Well, okay, <laughs> right, <laughs> okay, but we—we we think. I mean, the Racing Point was what the maybe the third or fourth quickest car out there last season so hopefully they'll be competing for the odd podium um maybe a victory they racing point did score a win didn't they in 2020 so hopefully we'll see some yeah if if the car is as close to a modern uh, to, to the current mercedes as this year's racing point was to the current I mean, it was kind of like last year's car wasn't it um then yeah there's every reason to think that they will be super competitive because you know it goes back to what you're saying you know, the team itself doesn't change you know the name on the door might change but inside it's the same people doing the same thing um so yeah, yeah as, lo- as, as long as the money's there which you know given who's behind the team i'm guessing it will be um then there's no i mean i think that's quite exciting isn't it i think it is um so before it was aston martin it was racing point and of course before it was racing point it was force india for a decade um Force India became a very sort of familiar name on the F1 grid, didn't it? Um, and before then, it was. Are you going to leap in now and tell me what what that team was called for a year in two thousand and seven? Oh God, um, hang on. Was it? I'm going to make it this so. This is going to be so embarrassing. Was it Midland? Oh, so close. It was no. Midland. It, it was Midland in two thousand and six. Just for that. year. Oh, for goodness' sake! So there's a year in between. Orange uh, livery, that might help. Oh, I guess exactly, yes. It, well, I, I know now, it was the bloody spiker, wasn't it? It was the bloody spiker. <laughs> okay, um, who drove the spiker? Do you know what? You could say absolutely anybody in the world, because I've got no idea. Um, I think Sutil did, because oh, he was a well, force India driver. I really wouldn't know. I think he you did. Could, you could say Ronald McDonald, and I wouldn't be able to tell you you were wrong. Yeah, he had trouble fitting his feet in, didn't he? Um, so, and before it was Midland in 2006, it was... For a long time. Oh, that I can do. Yeah, it was Jordan, wasn't it? It was Jordan. It was Jordan. It was Jordan. It was EJ's founded, team. Yeah. EJ, yeah. Founded by Eddie Jordan. 91 was their first year. At, at, at the same base at Silverstone. Actually, I think there, there is a new facility coming for the Aston Martin squad, isn't there? At, still at Silverstone, but on a slightly different site. But anyway, it's, it's the Silverstone team, founded by Eddie Jordan in the early 90s. The um, man who gave Michael Schumacher his break in Formula One. Yeah. And how many races do we think that outfit has now won jordan won was it just one well they won spa didn't they damon won Spa. no they no, they won more than that um no because frentzen won races in a jordan there was one season where frentzen went into the last race of the season with a mathematical chance of being world champion okay um, so and then with perez's win 
last season. There's a, that's a small handful of wins that team has had yeah, over no, the years. That's good, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. So there we go. Aston Martin taking over a race-winning team. Well, there we go. Lots to be hopeful about there. Aston Martin, just in case anybody is wondering about my earlier reference, um, did race in Formula One in 1959 um and it was i mean the the the, the sad thing about it i'm not going to drone on relentlessly because it's ancient history but it was actually a really good car Uh, and that's what people don't people look at the results and it was hopeless and it didn't come anywhere and that sort of thing um it was a really good car if it had been introduced in 1957 when it was meant to have been done because you know then it would have been super competitive but by coming in 1959 um what had happened in the interim was the mid-engine revolution had happened. And if you didn't have a mid-engine car by 1959, you weren't coming anywhere. And it wasn't a mid-engine car because it was late, because BM, because Aston Martin was too busy off, too busy trying to win the World Sports Car Championship and so on and so forth. And so a, what was a really good car never came to anything, unlike the successor, which was the DBR5 in 1960, which was an absolute dog's dinner of a car and still had its <laughs> engine in the wrong place. And we, we, yeah, the, the latest intel tells us that the new Aston Martin F1 car will have its engine in the right place. Is that right? It's not going to be a front-engine <laughs> F1 car. Exclusive. <laughs> Exclusive. Um, you heard it first here. <laughs> okay. Right, so the next team then is the Enstone team. Um, Enstone is actually an airfield. Or it's a, a little village, isn't it, with a, an airfield connected to it in the Cotswolds. Um, and it's where... The Renault team has been based for the last couple of years, and that, that's becoming Alpine for 2021, yeah. um, which is interesting itself, isn't it? Because it wasn't too long ago that there were rumblings that Group Renault might be about to give Alpine the old heave-ho because, it, well, whatever, wasn't selling enough cars or whatever it might be. But now the group really appears to be backing the the little sports car brand because it's becoming its F1 team. They're, you know, re, re, uh, repurposing the Renault F1 team to Alpine. It's a, it's, that's real backing, isn't it? That, that's, that's reason. It, 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 would certainly, it would certainly seem to be, you know, I'm always a bit of a cynic when it comes to these things and I'm always looking at, you know, how quickly they could engineer their way out of that. And of course, they could turn it back to Renault or they could withdraw entirely. But at the same time, you know, it's quite a big statement, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, um, I think it so, is. I mean, I don't know when those sorts of decisions get made, but, you know, I suspect it was probably decided during COVID and everything else. And obviously, you know, everybody's had a really, really tough time. Um, But they still seem to think that the Alpine brand has... And we've talked about this before, haven't we? It has has legs. So yes, I think I think on the surface, at least, it it looks like a vote of confidence. But I'm just I'm just so cynical about um, any Formula One team uh, that exists not for the purposes of racing so you know there, there were the there, there are the teams there are teams like mclaren and williams and so on and so forth um and you know jordan back in the day which which only existed to race you know they weren't there to sell fizzy drinks or road cars or anything else um and you know when these things become marketing tools which they are for their manufacturers whose primary business is not racing in formula one then i'm always a bit cynical but um and 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 even suspicious but uh, you know i think you can only go with what you know at any given moment in time and from what we know renault appear to be four square behind alpine which is which is great news yeah and the it's the endstone team that sort of chopped and changed more than any other i think really um, oh no you're not going to start quizzing me again well i don't know well, well yes actually so it, it, it started off in whitney um, so not at Enstone at all, started off at Whitney in Oxfordshire in 1981 as Tolman. Um, yes, I knew for, that. Did you? Yes. Well, it's easy to say once I've told you, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> as, as Tolman, of course, Senna raced for Tolman, didn't he? He did. Which yes, is, he, had that, he had that amazing race in Monaco yeah. in 1984, which he should have won. Yeah, um, he, he should have won. Fun, funnily enough, when it, it was raining and, and, and a Frenchman managed to get the Monaco Grand Prix stops to make sure that he won. Baffling, Who'd have thought it? it? Baffling. Um, and so this this outfit, the Whitney slash Enstone team, has got incredible heritage. Um, so, of course, after Tolman, um, it became Benetton. Yeah. Um, and it, uh, so when did it move over? Yeah, so during the Benetton years, that's when the move happened over to Enstone. Um, and, of course, in the mid-90s, Benetton had enormous success again with Schumacher, 
um, winning titles, winning lots of races. Um, and then it was in 2002 that Benetton got rebranded Renault for the first time. And then, of course, quite soon after, there was enormous success again with the Alonso years. Yes. It's good, isn't it? There's... It's, it's really good. It's really and then, good. And then there was that slightly baffling period where it became Lotus. But they still won, didn't they? Yeah, you know, with Kimi. I, 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 well, I mean, I, I, I continue to remind people um, that, well, I mean, certainly until um, the racing point win this year, the last race in Formula One to have been won by anything other than a Ferrari, a Red Bull or a Mercedes was the 2013 Australian Grand Prix, which was won by Kimi in a car that called itself a Lotus. Mm. Yeah, it, it was. there was all sorts of weird legal wranglings going on, wasn't there, in, during that time, who had the rights to that name. Um, but anyway, but the, the Lotus, for a couple of years at least, was a really quick car, won races, and there was that brilliant story, wasn't there, that Kimi was on a fairly small retainer, but he, he uh, his bonus package was something like $100,000 per point. So if he won a race, that's two and a half million quid in his pocket. Is that true? Don't know, but it's a good story. Oh, well, I mean, I, I, I don't know if it is true, but it wouldn't surprise me in the least. I mean, I know, for instance, that race teams... I'm trying to think if I can remember a specific... I'm, I, I, I've got a name on my mind, but I won't say it just in case it's, it's untrue in this particular case. But race teams that paid drivers um, on performance pay you know, basis, so exactly what you say, where you get a certain amount of money per point score, then insured against their drivers scoring points. Oh, <laughs> that's brilliant. So the better their drivers did, the bigger the insurance claim. They literally took out insurance against <laughs> their drivers doing well. I've never heard um, that before. Yeah, no, that's no, fantastic. I, 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 I'm, yeah, that definitely went on. Extraordinary. <laughs> really. Yeah. So after that brief uh, Lotus spell, actually, it's a handful of years. There was again, it became Renault from 2016, and those were the Renault, the sort of rebuilding years, weren't they? Um, and it, it, it looked a bit grim for a while, but 2020 was pretty good for Renault. Uh, Ricciardo got on the podium a couple of times, didn't he? Um, and the team certainly looked more competitive than it has done in recent years. So we'll see what happens in 21 under the Alpine colours with Alonso in the car as a, what is he, 40 years old now? <laughs> Interesting, isn't it? Yeah, he, 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 he will be quick. He posted a little clip on Instagram the other day of himself sat in an Alpine uh, looking all excited at an A110 road car. Um, so that was fun. Hopefully... It'll be just be, do you know what they need to do? They just need to stick Fernando in an A110 on track somewhere with a couple of GoPros attached and just say, go for it, and just release the raw footage. It'd be brilliant. That'd be great. It would I'd do like millions, wouldn't it? It would. It really would. Um, okay, so the other, one other, no, we've got two more teams to talk about. Um, so we did mention Ken Tyrrell's team, Tyrrell, which um, started off in Ockham in Surrey uh, in, well, we'll call it 1966. I think that was their first season in F1. Um, and then in the late 90s, it got taken over by British Amer- American Racing, which is when it moved from uh, Ockham to Brackley. Um, and then, of course, it was Honda after that. Uh, those were fairly dire years, weren't they? Although I think Jensen won his first race in 05 or Hungary. 06, isn't it? Yeah, Hungary. Uh, so, and I, I think that year's car was quick and he did well in the championship. But the last two years, 07, 08, my earth dream with that bizarre Planet Earth livery. It was, that car was just dire. Um, but then 2009 came around. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that entire BAR Honda thing, I mean, it was... I mean, they just didn't deliver, did they? Um, I'm afraid. Um, I mean, I mean, the BAR, it was originally... That was um, Adrian Reynard, wasn't it? Um, at, the, yeah. at, at the beginning and he came into it and the extraordinary thing about Reynards is Reynard had never taken had never started in any new series without winning its first race everything they'd ever done they'd gone out and won from the start um, and so they you know and, and, and it's like you know so many other great race teams I mean, you remember Lola um, you know they, Lola did unbelievable things in you know almost every formula but you know but every so often they tried formula one um and they just struggled um and i think it just gives you an idea of just what a step up it is just how difficult it is and frankly how long it took i mean we know don't we for instance you know while we're talking about you know defunct formula one teams 
you know, how many seasons did Toyota do in Formula One without ever winning a race? Seven seasons, yeah. was it? Yeah. I can't remember. Um, the amount of money spent. The money spent, I mean, they were at the time the world's largest um, car company. You know, they dropped, you know, if you told me that, I don't know, a billion had gone into that program, I, you know, I wouldn't be that surprised. Um, and what do they have to show for it? It just shows how difficult it is and and to an extent i know that money talks and you know you look at just what mercedes are doing at the moment you know to know that the best funded teams tend always to do the best but it, but it, what it also shows is that money although money is probably the most important component it's not the only one isn't it is it you know you've got to have the ideas you've got to have the execution you've got to be able to take that money and do the right things with it or else you're still going to come nowhere yeah too true. And we know what happened in 2009 with the Brackley team. Oh, um, yes. When it, Honda pulled out, looked like the team wouldn't be racing. And then the the takeover led by Braun and just that remarkable fairy tale season um, that saw... The double diffuser. The double diffuser, yeah. And it, it actually, it was only the first sort of third of the season that the team dominated, wasn't it? Um, for Beyond that point, with Jensen having won, was it six of the first seven or something... The team struggled, um, but they'd done enough at the start of the year for well to win both championships, and it was it was the, the most amazing thing. I can remember Ross Braun telling me um, that in that when they were absolutely dominant, when they were just you know running away with it, that they'd put stuff on the car that had no noticeable effect on the car's performance whatsoever, just because they knew that others would come looking at it because they, they were so they were so far ahead. People would think, oh, no, they got some an- another amazing aerodynamic gizmo, so we have to go and analyse that. And they would burn so much of other teams' times. Um, and whatever these things were, they stuck on the car. The only rule was that they couldn't make the car slower. Uh, so as long as they were performance neutral, they came. And I just love the... To me, that is the way to go racing. I just, I just yeah. love the idea because... The spirit. That's, that's not cheating, is it, at all? That's, no. just, that's just being very, very clever. That's not just looking at what you're up to. That's just thinking, how can we make life even more difficult for these poor sods trying to keep up with us at the moment? And yeah. just putting stuff on the cars and then going, oh, no, what's that? <laughs> <laughs> It's like it's like having one very fast but fragile car at Le Mans that scampers off in the early hours, isn't it? Yeah. To try and break the other team's cars. The hair, yes, absolutely. Yeah, the hair. And, 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 and are you the are you the team manager who's brave enough to say don't chase the hair? Yeah. <laughs> it's it's great, isn't it? We love that stuff. Um, so yeah, I mean with that that amazing year in two thousand and nine, and then of course Mercedes took over the the team from twenty ten onwards, and actually it looked as though. But with Schumacher, Schumacher back, and it looked as though it was going to be a bit of a busted flush, that yeah. return. It, 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 it had a whiff of the Toyotas about it, didn't it? Yeah, it did. It did. And then the rule change in 2014, the, the huge regulation change that year. And then it's just been total dominance ever since. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, another team, the, the, the final team that I want to talk about, and dominance is very true here as well for a spell. Um, the Milton Keynes team, which we now know as Red Bull, utterly dominant from 2010 to 2013 with Sebastian Vettel. Um, <laughs> not so dominant uh, under its previous guys as Jaguar Racing, 2000 to 2004. That's another one to talk about, isn't it? Big OEMs yeah, coming in. Yeah, before that, can, can, can we talk a bit about what it was even before then? We can do. 96. Stu- Stuart Grand Prix. Yeah, that, that 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 was where the team actually started. It, you know, well, it a... started. It started as Paul Stewart Racing. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the amazing thing. Um, you know, I know Paul a bit because he, you know, he he, he does uh, he doesn't race anymore, but he often turns up and does demos at uh, historic events with, that I'm at and that sort of thing. And I sat down, I sat down and had lunch with him quite recently. Absolutely fascinating bloke. Don't forget, this is a bloke who got cancer at the age of 34 and had to retire from um the jaguar formula one thing i mean the stress of that job was just off the scale but before that i mean he'd been a pretty successful racing driver i think he knew he was never going to be as good as his dad um but paul stewart racing um before it went into formula one he won they won everything i mean they were utterly dominant uh in i can't remember all the junior formula you know if you wanted if you wanted to win formula you know you had to go and race you had to go and race with paul and paul for a while was not only running the team but he was racing for it as well Uh, and i think it was only because 
they basically won everything that they could win, um, that they were looking around and thinking, what next? Um, and because Jackie was obviously very well connected um, and, you know, particularly well connected with Ford, um, that they were able to put together the deal that, you know, that, that, that started, um, yeah, Stuart Grand Prix. And, you know, Stuart Grand Prix, for a tiny little team that did nothing and came out of nowhere, I say did nothing, you know, I mean, what I mean is, um, you know, had started from nothing, Um they did, they did really good stuff. Do you remember Rubens coming second at Monaco um, in the rain because he didn't stop and everybody else did? And I can remember there's somewhere there's some footage of Jackie in literally in floods of tears, <laughs> which you'd never have seen him do yeah. in his Formula One career. It meant that much more to him. Um, and then, of course, towards the end of Stewart, they they got pretty successful. I can't remember. Did I mean, Johnny won the British Grand Prix for them, didn't they? I mean, they had a really strong season, and I guess that's why one of the reasons that um, Jaguar thought they could come in and um, you know bung a load of money behind it and you know sweep all before them. Um, but as we know, there's many a slip, isn't there? Many, yeah. Another example like Toyota. Um... Yeah, the, the Jaguar thing just didn't really work out, did it? Um, I, w- I went to its very first race. Go on. What was the atmosphere like? What, what, Melbourne, what the... too. Well, I mean, Jaguar, pe- Jaguar appeared to have bought the city. I can remember, I can remember staggering off the 747 um, and literally in the airway that linked the aircraft to the terminal building. All the adverts down the side of it were leapers, you know, the cat's back, um, Jaguar this, Jaguar that. Um, and, you know, it was, if, I don't know. I, I mean, I don't really know enough about it, but, you know, the, the, I mean, the cars had both problems, didn't they? If you're going to design a Formula One car, um, you know, if it's quick and unreliable, well, okay, fine, you can address the unreliability, uh, maybe at a cost of a bit of speed. Um, or if it's very reliable but not very quick, then perhaps you can, you know, cut back your margins a bit more and make it. But if it is both not very fast and unreliable, which that Jaguar was, you kind of got nowhere to go. And I think it was relative to expectations. And, um, yeah, I mean, just as, 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 as something where we all just thought that Jaguar, having also, don't forget, achieved so much in Group C and sports cars and everything else. We just thought, you know, they're going to come and, you know, and, and do the same in Formula One. And again, you know, they, I'm afraid they just showed that it's not as easy as that. Um, and I felt very sorry for Paul um, because I know how hard he worked. Um, and they had some really, really good people there. Um, I think, uh, who was driving? It was Johnny and Eddie, wasn't it? Um, you know, who were both, you know, good drivers, both of whom either had or would go on to win, you know, a reasonable number of Grand Prix. So I don't think that they were particularly deficient in that department. Um, but the car wasn't right. Um, and I think the faster they tried to make it, the less reliable it became. And it was just, you know, they did five seasons, I think. Um, and did they get a podium? I can't remember. They might have. I got a funny feeling. I got a memory of, of, of Johnny sitting in a, in a press conference. Um, but I, I don't know. Fingers burnt. Um, so all, all four of those teams are now in that Motorsport Valley region of the UK. Um, and of course, Williams is in there. Um, McLaren isn't in that region, but it is in the UK. And Haas, it has its headquarters in the US, of course, but its Formula One outfit is based out of Banbury, also in the Motorsport Valley area. And so that puts six of the current Formula One teams in Motorsport Valley, seven in the UK. Seven out of ten. That's good, isn't it? And it's, it's interesting that so many of the teams have found themselves based in the UK. Um, and it, it sort of becomes self-fulfilling in a way. If all the expertise and resource is in one spot, you almost have to be there. Yeah, I mean, it would, it would seem almost perverse, isn't it, to set up shop anywhere else? Because, uh, you know, how do you go about recruiting the expertise? How do, you, how, how do you get the talent? How do you persuade that many people to relocate to... I mean, I guess if you set one up in Tahiti or somewhere absolutely lovely, then you know, that, 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 that might be <laughs> well, a draw. A thought. <laughs> but, 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 but you're just making life more difficult for yourself, aren't you? So you're absolutely right. You know, um, nothing succeeds like success. And, you know, the, the reason it's been like that and has been like that for so very long is because it's like that. Um, and, that it, and you don't have to think about it any harder than that. But it, it is interesting just to think for a moment as to why it became that because it wasn't always that way no you know um 
And I'm just trying to think. So, you know, the Formula One, I mean, before Formula One, when they were still Grand Prix racing, um, the British were completely hopeless. Um, you know, you had, what did you have? You had ERAs, which were quite good at what you're at racing, but, you know, were, were hopeless at the top level. You had, in sports car racing, yes, you had Bentley winning a little more in the 1920s and, you know, and a lot of Lagonda won one in 1935. But you know, at the top level, we had no presence in, in Grand Prix racing, really. Um, and then at the beginning of the 50s, you had, you know, plucky efforts like BRM coming to absolutely nothing. And it was really only towards, you know, so Vanwall were probably the first, weren't they? I mean, okay, so the first Britain to win a Grand Prix, it was a non-championship race in a British car, was Tony Brooks, won at Syracuse Grand Prix in 1955. Um, and then after that, yeah, you remember the ways the Italians dominated, basically, as Ferrari and Alfa, uh, and then Mercedes briefly in the middle of the 1950s. And then suddenly, you know, Vanwall comes along and wins the first ever constructors trophy and then come the mid-engine guys then comes cooper and everything changes um so um you know jack brabham wins the world championship uh in 1959 and 1960 with cooper um and then okay ferrari then get it back uh for 1961 but they rest on their laurels and then after that you know the brits uh with brm and with lotus and you know and cooper to an extent um the garagistas as ferrari yeah. used to rather disparagingly call them um just took control and they've never stopped um it was and and i think it was just down to innovation wasn't it it was just down to you know when you had when your opposition or principal opposition was ferrari which you know, which was as a team back then certainly was very traditional in its thinking. They absolutely believed that the engine was the way forward, and and, and the Brits took took a different view. They just thought, no, we you know you can have all the power in the world, but if your car is heavy or you know the engine that's providing it is in the wrong place, um, then you're not going to be making the most of it. And we can actually make cars which aren't just quick in a straight line, but which stop well, which go around corners well. Um, and I think it was that revolution which basically handed the advantage to britain and we've never given it back mm, yeah they've just sort of held on to it and after the the 60s 70s era uh williams and mclaren both had periods of dominance um and enormous success between them um and it, so it's interesting to sort of look at how it happened in the first place how in the 50s um, Formula One, the sort of the UK became the epicenter of it. Um, last year, um, while I was still editing Motorsport UK's in-house magazine, it's called Revolution. Um, I got our mate Colin Goodwin to write a piece about how Formula One, how it, how the UK became home to seven of the ten Formula One teams. What exactly happened there? Um, and he wrote a really interesting piece with some good ideas. Of course, I, su- I suspect there are lots of different factors, but he had some good ideas. One of which was uh, after the war, you know, we had all these airfields that were surplus to requirements, didn't need to fly in and out of them anymore. Um, and so they became racetracks. And it, that just helps, doesn't it? If there are lots of yeah. circuits available, it just helps a uh, Formula yeah. One design and construction industry to, to crop up. That's, of course, how Silverstone um, was once uh, an RAF base and is now home of the British Grand Prix. Um, yeah, and, 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 and if you think about the talent that you need, you know, that's, you know, it's not just about the drivers or just about the circuits. It's about, you know, creating that business, which then creates employment, which then draws people to it. And then suddenly you have an industry. And from that industry, you can pluck the talent. That's how it starts, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. And the, the other thing that Goodwin pointed out is that, so really, the, it, it was the southeast of England um, that, that was the, this hotbed of engineering uh, capability. And it's, it, a lot of it is to do with the Second World War because there was so much skill, so much expertise when it came to fabrication, welding chassis, turning components on lathes, says Goodwin, panel beating, working soft alloys, all those skills that you needed to construct aircraft were useful also for racing cars. Um, but it's interesting, so- isn't it? I mean, the, the war obviously ended in 1945, and yet we didn't really establish um, dominance until, what, 15 years later. So, yeah, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Maybe these things take a lot of time to, for want of a better word, repurpose themselves. Yeah, I think that's probably right. Um, and then, of course, 
at some point a little bit later on, there was this sort of exodus from the southeast, just because the teams were getting bigger. They needed more staff, they needed bigger premises, and the southeast was too expensive. And so where did they go? Well, they they scooted off up the M40. Was the M40 even there? I don't know. But you know, up up that that region and set up shop in Oxfordshire and um, and that 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 sort of area. And that's how motorsport value came to be. And now we have six of the ten Formula One teams based in a very very small area with actually a huge number of related businesses. Um, the numbers that. Goodwin offered us were four and a half thousand companies in the UK that are directly related to motorsport, together employing directly forty five thousand people. Um, it's it's just an enormous industry and worth worth ten billion. How much? Ten billion a year to the UK. Yeah, I, I, I can believe it. And you know, and if if you look at the ripples as they spread out through the supply chain, it'll be much more yeah. than that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's enormous, isn't it? It's it's become such a part of British industry and something that, I don't know, I actually feel quite proud of it that this little country of ours is home to so much talent, expertise, capability, innovation. Yeah, and, 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 and we mustn't be too sort of flag-waving, tub-thumping about it because, you know, because, you know, these teams are based in Britain, but they, they draw in talent from all over yeah. the yeah, world. Yeah. Um, and they are, you know, if you've been into any... Um, Formula One team, you will always be amazed by uh, the number of different accents um, that you hear because people do come to it from all over. But even so, I, mean, I, th- I think it's fantastic that you know a company like um, Mercedes Benz, you know, one of the biggest, most revered, successful car companies on earth. You know, everything on that car, um, you know, from its engine to its tub and everything else, is done in. I mean, either Bricksworth or Brackley. Um, and, you know, it is an entirely British team, albeit paid for by Mercedes-Benz, um, you know, um, and staffed by, you know, lots of people from many, many different nations. But I think, I think you're absolutely right. I think it is something that we can be genuinely proud of, you know, because we lead the world in that, at least. Mm. <laughs> that, at least, if nothing else. Um, well, we haven't even mentioned uh, Lotus, proper Lotus, not really, or not got stuck into Brabham either. Um, so we'll have to leave those for another podcast. Um, but there we go. That's the Formula One family tree. It's, I just think it's great that you can trace the the most dominant team there's ever been uh, all the way back to the 1960s and Ken Tyrrell partly because my grandmother my maternal grandmother's maiden name was Tyrrell and her son my uncle swears that the that his let me get this right that his his own uncle was the spitting image of Ken Tyrrell so <laughs> I reckon there might even be a little connection there somewhere I know someone who could find that connection for you. Oh, really? Yes, I do. Yes, this really isn't podcast material, but my uh, my wife's sister's partner's mother. Oh my god! Okay, yeah, is a retired spook. She used to work for GCHQ, oh. Oh and she's incredibly intelligent and incredibly bored, and so <laughs> and she's really, really good at finding out stuff. Um, and because I knew nothing about my family history, uh, we got her on the case. Um, and in the end, I had to ask her to stop. Once, <laughs> once she found, well, she'd found over 500 relatives, which is wow. why I know, for instance, that I am Nigella Lawson's sixth cousin. Oh, <laughs> but isn't everyone Nigella Lawson's sixth cousin or something? Almost certainly. Almost certainly. But um, yeah, so if you ever want to find out whether you really are Ken Tyrrell's something, 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 many times removed. Um, I, I, I could put you in touch with someone who will find out for you. Okay, very good. To be discussed then. We'll, yes. yeah, we'll announce the results in a future podcast episode. Um, we'll leave that one there. Well, there we go. We're back underway. Um, yeah, new year. Lots to be optimistic about. And we'll get back into weekly podcasts. Uh, yep. Actually, we're going to do more than that soon, aren't we? There's going to be so much more to come uh, from us at DN. Um, we can't say too much at the moment, but... I think this is going to be a good year for DN, and hopefully you'll it's, all it, enjoy it. It. It, it, it. It should be, well, we hope. Um, you know, the reason we're not saying anything is because um, plans aren't finalised yet. But we, we certainly know what we want to do, um, and we think we know how we're going to do it. We just haven't done it yet, which is why we 
uh, are being a little bit coy. Um, but we're very excited about it. If it all comes to fruition, we hope you'll be very excited about it. We hope that you'll come with us. And uh, yeah, lots more to say on that in the hopefully not too distant future. Watch this space. Uh, and we'll be, we'll be back to talk to you again next week. Look forward to it. All the best. The Drive Nation podcast with Dan Prosser and Andrew Frankel. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 